0: Hello everyone, I'm Tom Denford, co-founder of ID.coms. Welcome to episode 25 of Media Snack Meets. Recorded each week in New York, we get to meet the individuals and organizations doing great work to inspire success and drive change within the global media and marketing industry. In each episode, we find out what is behind that success, what it takes to make change in the industry, and what the rest of us can learn from that experience. My guest for this episode is Jerry D'Angelo, the global media director of Procter & Gamble, also known as the world's biggest advertiser and overseeing an annual media investment in the many billions of dollars. Jerry took the role as the company's most senior media leader in January 2017, just at the moment when his boss, P&G's global chief brand officer, Mark Pritchard, was beginning a series of high-profile conference speeches demanding greater transparency from the media industry. You might recall some of those soundbites with Mark talking about the murky media supply chain, the fox guarding the hen house and calling on other marketers to drive change and vote with your dollars. What an exciting time to be put in charge of P&G's global media and be a leading figure in such transformative change in the industry as brands around the world are inspired by P&G to take back more control of media decision making. But this big role comes with big challenges, not least how to navigate a vast global marketing organisation, how to decide the priorities to focus on, and all the while acknowledging the influence that P&G has on marketers around the world. I think I would personally find the job quite overwhelming, but as you will hear, Jerry is a master of making the complex simple and bringing a calm and pragmatic approach to the crazy world of modern advertising. Now, I've known Jerry a while, and I was delighted he took this role, because I think he is just the kind of person that we all need to be an important statesman for the long-term health of the media industry worldwide. Jerry was previously media director at Mondelez, based in Zurich, and now he moves incessantly between family in the UK, an office in Geneva, and P&G's global headquarters in Cincinnati. In this episode, we explore some of Jerry's secrets to being an effective media director in a complex media age, how companies can define an operating model for media, and what exactly is a media Johnny. You can check the full show notes for this episode at mediasnackpodcast.com forward slash 25, including a full transcript, but please enjoy this highly insightful interview with the global media director of Procter & Gamble, Jerry D'Angelo. Welcome and welcome to New York. What we're going to really focus on talking about today, which I think is fascinating, because you're, the industry knows you as a global media director of a large organization and there are a number of you similar people yeah. in these kind of roles. I think it it's really interesting to really just learn about that, what it what it's takes to be a global media director and what the job is like. What does a global media director do? It's probably the first... Good question. I mean, I've been asked that
1: that question both internally and externally. And the way that I like to try and answer that is to say that there's definitely a part of the role that is to provide stewardship and governance and oversight to, to the media spend. And I think that's the bedrock of the role, really, to make sure that the dollars and they're not insubstantial dollars wherever you're working, I think. Uh, to be spent in the best way possible. The other kind of key component, I think, particularly in a world, in the way it is at the moment in terms of the pace of change, is to make sure that you're continually innovating and making sure that you're reinventing the way that you take the media operating model, whether it's for p or for any other advertiser, and making sure that it's future-proofed going forward. So I, I think it's those two kind of key components the role which give it its breadth and its variety.
0: Yeah. Some say, oh, this is amazing because you get that media role is having increasing influence through Mm -hmm. the business. You're touching many more functions, data and analytics and CRM and getting more involved in business technology, maybe feeling a bit more like a marketer. And then there are others that say it's kind of like being in a vice because the role is being squeezed on all sides by different functions. Is that a true reflection? Some are feeling like it's it's expanding out and some are feeling like it's constricting in.
1: um, I definitely would agree that the role of being a global media director has changed fundamentally over the last uh, 20 years or so. And I talk internally a lot about adjacencies. And I think that's a nice way of saying that the role of a media director, as a result of the changing role of media, has started to get broader and more expansive. And it's beginning to touch different parts of the organization and that, is, I think, provides you with the right language internally to overcome overlaps and turf wars and kind of competing remits. If you talk in that, in that much more uh, conciliatory way about adjacencies, I think that engenders a, a, a sense of collaboration yeah. uh, internally. I think the other thing that has really made the role of a media director very, very complicated in, in, in this day and age is that the number of things that I have to think about, and many of us have to think yeah. about, we just didn't have to think about 20 years ago. A very good example of that, I think, is ad fraud. You know, when when I was buying a spot on Time Tees television 20 years ago... No one really had to worry at that point in time whether the television station was going to defraud you or whether some other third party bad actor was going to kind of enter in and start to, to uh, add a fraudulent component to the transaction. So that's something we need to really worry about. The other one, I think, also is brand safety. If you were buying that spot on Time TV television and it was the middle of Coronation Street, you knew it. You knew you everyone, it. everyone understood the context, yeah. everyone understood that it was professionally produced content. And so brand safety didn't really come into the equation. Mm. Uh, and probably the third area, I think, now is, is in terms of the area of data. That is a, another dimension, I think, of change that has completely transformed the role
0: yeah. of, a, of a global media yeah. director these days. But those are all massive things which require specialisms yes. in their own right. Do you feel, or in, the, in, the glo- in the role of a media director in an organization at, at scale... There must be felt like this pressure to kind of be the the knowledge and all sure. of these things. So, sure. how do you equip yourself? So I have with the, enough um, to be the expertise internally. Yeah, I mean, look,
1: undoubtedly, that's absolutely true for a an area of the business that we're operating in that is subject to so much dynamic change, and you are set up as the internal mm-hmm. subject matter expertise expert on that then there is clearly going to be a tendency for many people in the organization to orientate towards you and say, what should I do on X uh, platform or in Y circumstance? And I, have to, I think probably the best advice is to be very, very honest and say that the pace of change is terrifyingly fast. And as a result of that, there is very little established expertise. And we all are all learning at that point in time. Um, And I think that what that lends itself to is a sense of iteration and learning plans and trying things because, you know, if you've Mm. created a a current best approach on something and it's taken you three months to write it Mm. and it's gone through two or three layers of approval, by the time you get that out into the marketplace – it might have changed. Yeah. Um, so I think the way that I approach it is to say that everybody's learning in this particular space,
0: and yeah. I think that makes it much more inclusive. Yeah. There's some pressure that I've certainly heard from others, where because in that global role, it's quite rare that you actually hold on to the money. You know, like <laughs> yeah. you, you're not, you're not the budget holder. The budget holder, um, and so therefore, a lot of the role is to help the business understand strategy in these things, right? So you can have common global standards for stuff, like yeah. that where regions and markets yeah. then can raise to best practice and you can be a facilitator of shared learnings. So is that the way that you, you kind of view it? Yeah,
1: I mean, absolutely. The, you know, undoubtedly, the, the budgets whatever business that you're working in the the budgets are always going to be sitting in the business uh whether that's at a country level or whether it's uh, aggregated up to a regional global yeah. pnl uh that's always the case and so you have to form a trusted uh relationship internally yeah. in order to be able to provide subject matter expertise to be able to provide input in such a way that you're treating it like it's your own money yeah. and quite often i use that phrase you know, if if this was my money yeah. or if I was running a sole proprietorship and, you know, I was literally borrowing this money from the bank, this is how I would invest it. Yeah. Gets you at least halfway into yeah. the relationship. And one of the things that I think that I found most successful is that you need to engender and build a capability in the stakeholders that you're working with. Yeah. You know, you can't have this relationship where you're the expert about everything and then you're kind of just dictating them how, yeah. how they spend the money. And I think that's one of the dynamics that I'm seeing most recently, which is that there's definitely an increased understanding of the importance of media to people's businesses. Yeah. So people that I know that are running businesses and running big P&Ls, they're treating media like a very important driver of their business. Yeah they're taking greater responsibility of understanding that space and they're beginning to internalize a, some of that work yeah. in a way that probably wasn't the case a few yeah. years ago.
0: Yeah, good. So then you can then trust, the, whether that be the internal organization yeah. and all the external partners, to kind of go execute to some yeah. standards yeah, that you absolutely. can keep an eye on.
1: Yeah, I think the, uh, and you might have used this term before, I think that everybody needs to have a, a kind of an operating model for, for media, yep. uh, whether you call it an operating model or a framework or a template or an approach. And for a long time, I think, there was a sense that you needed to create these kind of universal principles that were applicable in in every instance. Yep. And I know that I've got on the record of saying that one of the most influential books out there at the moment, or well, in the last... 10 years or so has been Byron Sharp, uh, Laws of Growth.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, well, sorry, How, how, brands, how, grow, how yeah. brands Grow. As a result of that, I think I think people really liked the idea of there were certain immutable truths in mm-hmm. media that you could apply in a very universal way. Mm-hmm. But I think that's kind of over-rotated a little bit to the sense uh, to the point where there's a sense that there's three or four rules and it's kind of applicable in absolutely every uh, instance and circumstance and I don't think that's actually the case Mm. every brand needs to find and be comfortable with its own characteristics uh, and its own circumstances that it finds itself in Mm. one of the ways of doing that I think is to talk about you know how big a brand is and the level of Involvement in the
0: category that it's competing in, yeah. so I think those are useful dimensions for that. Yeah, good. So you you mentioned you know taking responsi, feeling yes. like you're taking responsibility for the money. Yeah, and also that increasingly businesses are thinking of media as an investment in some kind of business outcome. Like that's a slight change in thinking I think in a lot of marketing organisations. Yeah. Is media's not a big budget that you give to a media director to go spend that there's perhaps increased accountability yeah. now with that and thinking of it like an investment. And that's good and it empowers the media director to feel that they're responsible for a for an invest, yeah. company's investment. But then that comes with the scrutiny of the CFO yeah. and the CMO and others, yeah. which is I think is probably a good thing because media seems to be higher profile yeah. within organizations. People are taking it seriously and they want to get it right, and therefore that's demanding... Yeah. Better strategy, better yeah. framework, blueprint, yeah. operating model, whatever whatever it is. What's been your experience over over, you know, if we look back over twenty years, are we at peak like peak accountability, if you like, of the yeah. Yeah, no, media?
1: I, no, absolutely. Whilst I think it was there was a degree of comfort in the past that you were able to operate not on the front line of the business mm-hmm. and you were able to operate in a highly specialized way that no one really understand, understood well what you were doing and you were able to kind of finesse exactly how to bring these strategies to life and extract most value. I think there was some value to that. But at the same time, I think that as a result of that, if you were in an agency, you've got the last five minutes of the of the presentation. Yeah. Or if you're a client side, you were kind of, you know, a highly specialized person that wasn't on the kind of main Fast track of career progression through an organisation, and I think you're absolutely right. As these budgets have grown and uh, and the demand for more accountability has grown, I think what's happened is that whether you're agency side or client side, you you whether you like it or not, you're being thrust into more of this commercial front line of the business. Yeah. And unfortunately, with that, if you're put into this into this spotlight, mm-hmm. um, you have to step forward and kind of grasp the mantle of. This additional responsibility. This is absolutely the right thing to do because if you're working in a large organization that's been established for a long time, one of the main competitive threats that you're dealing with is much smaller, more nimble businesses that have a a direct relationship or a direct transactional relationship with consumers. So they've got it, right? They've got that faster cycle of uh, understanding how their investment has worked and then turning it into uh, revisions further down the line. And I think we have to adopt that. And that, I think, is one of the biggest challenges that a lot of these big companies are facing, which is how do you create more of a closed loop attributing a sale to a particular investment and also, very importantly, doing that sufficiently fast enough to be able to influence the next investment decision. Exactly. It comes with the territory.
0: That, of course, means that the role of media directors changes hugely. Does that require a different type of person, you think, these days versus maybe where we were five, ten years ago? Great question, because I can certainly see an evolution
1: in my skill set, an evolution in my capabilities, and I find that I have to continually keep learning. Mm. Otherwise, what will happen is that the the role will kind of evolve onwards without me. And I've almost there's a sense that I feel that I almost have to keep pace with my own role in in many ways, Uh, and and keep redesigning
0: it. Yeah, it's kind of like
1: being the Madonna of the media world. Not me personally, of course, but I think all of us. We have to kind of keep reinventing ourselves every 12 to 24 months because there's an additional dimension to the role that comes in or there's an additional piece of technology that we have to kind of absorb and assimilate and understand how it's going to impact the business. And I think it's fair to say that the people who've succeeded in the industry – have been the ones who I think have been able to to do that yeah. and have been happy to put their hands up and say, I don't know about this area, and so therefore I have to immerse myself in it and go and find out about it. Yeah. And those that haven't, I think, have struggled and have maybe moved on to other things. Yeah. And a good example, I think, of that for me was Twitter, for example. Like I realized three years ago that I didn't really understand how the platform worked. I thought it was a bit clunky. I didn't know how to use it. I didn't know how to engage with people. I didn't know who to follow yeah. Yeah. It was almost like diving into a foreign language. And yeah. so now uh, I'm a bit more active on that platform. Yeah. And as a result of that, I'm able to give advice
0: to uh, internal stakeholders. Yeah. We'll link to Jerry's Twitter, Twitter feed, so you can keep, keep an eye on that. Yes. I always think you should have way more followers. It's a, you have a respectable <laughs> amount, but I thought, like, given, given your profile it's, in the industry... It's, yeah,
1: it's not great, but, yeah, but on, maybe I started, I started late. Yeah. And maybe I'll be a late bloomer on good. that platform. Good,
0: good. In terms of the evolving role, I think that's mm-hmm. good. I mean, we're seeing the same, is that there seems to be some moving out and new kind of people moving into yep. those kind of roles. But also in the last couple of years, we're seeing, which I think is fantastic, is seeing some media experts... Mm-hmm blooming into kind of marketers being given like VP marketing roles or you know going to CMO roles in organizations I think that's really interesting that that in my view seems to be something that's opening up I, yeah. I guess because that media expertise perhaps is being more highly valued as being more of a catalyst of some great you know yeah. marketing well
1: it it's hasn't really happened to me yet so yeah, well, yeah. but you know the, the, hopefully there's still some time I think what's driving that is and I always I was never able to figure this one out when I first started in the industry I couldn't quite figure out how in a in an industry where we were spending 85% of the money that ended up with 15% or less of the time and attention yeah. and resources that's now flipping very very rapidly to the point now where businesses as a whole are really beginning to understand the importance of media as a as a huge investment and so therefore there's a preparedness I think to be yeah. able to to pluck some of those people and then put them into broader roles, because yeah. media is such an an integral and important part of of the modern marketer's role. And the way that I think it's really coming to the fore now is where people are talking about a performance mindset yeah.
0: um,
1: internally at P&G. We call it performance marketing, and performance brand building. But really, within that, there's an implicit uh, realization that a very large part of that is media driven, yeah. because you're taking these these dollars. And you're moving them around the system to where the performance is the greatest at the, the fastest possible rate that you can, you can do that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not surprised that's
0: happening yeah. at all. Good. And that leads us kind of nicely, actually, onto something else that we want to talk about, which was, which we've touched on a bit, but this changing role of media. You got a few questions recently on Twitter yeah. because you'd use the term media johnnies, which is a kind of phrase that we know from Yeah, uh, I didn't imagine Britain. it, right? It, it, it's something we used to say, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah anyone in like UK media will kind of know what media johnnies are but they were people (laughs) it's not it's not a dismissive expression but it was a type of person it was a bit kind of geezer like wasn't it everyone wore blue shirts and we'd like had a couple of pints and we'd like go and buy media and it was all a bit trader like
1: yeah I Um, think the US equivalent is like the media guy yeah right it's kind of like there's a particular caricature of this type of person yeah yeah
0: and and you can imagine, particularly in days when it was probably when you and I started, it was like still full service kind of mindset, yes. if not actually structurally. I started in full service agency. And when you had those media Johnny types, mm. they, they were like oil and water with the, with the creative. Yes. And so when a, a client was in the building, yeah. the creatives would take 95% of the time because they were probably a bit more accessible and interesting and inspiring, took up 95% of the presentation. Right. If you were lucky, then the media journeys would get wheeled in for yeah. five minutes at did the end. Did we used to
1: call it the God slot, or did I just imagine that? You would. Have, it was originally, if you were in a pitch presentation, it would be like 15% of the time. Yeah. And then over the course of the two-hour presentation, it shrank. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly
0: right. Yeah, And, then, and then, then, you know, all, all the media journeys would walk in. Yeah. All wearing basically like grey trousers and blue blue shirts and, right. and short haircuts and looking a bit trader like. Yes. Flash up a spreadsheet that nobody could read and talk about <laughs> some of the, you know, quality <laughs> programming that they were going to buy. Yeah. And those, I remember those days fondly. And we, you know, we would spend our time optimizing kind of TV yes. spots and all that kind of fun stuff. But things have changed. And the most important part of that, which is what you were talking about mm-hmm. a little bit earlier, was that media is being placed mm-hmm. a bit more at the center. And, and also, they're not two distinctly different disciplines. I mean, it's not like creative types and media types in, the, in such an extreme way. Perhaps maybe we're better at. I think. Crop,
1: I mean, I, look, I haven't. I haven't worked that. in an agency for a long time, so I, I, I'm not sure if I can speak to. to um the culture of how those things are changing but i mean clearly you know looking from the outside in that that's clearly changing a lot i think i'm better placed to talk about how that's that's happening inside large organizations because there are creative experts i think in a lot of these large organizations as there are media experts as well and i think one of the things i'm seeing is there was clearly differentiation between the two but that is coming together Slowly but surely. I'm kind of putting my faith in the younger people starting in the business because I think one of the things that I'm finding is that whether you started in a junior creative position and then you started and then you evolved and progressed throughout your career the younger people who are starting in those positions are already more media literate yeah. and technology literate in a way I think that they're more they're more junior they're more senior peers are uh, not yeah. and similarly I think if you if you look at media people that come into the industry they have more of a creative sensibility yeah. and one of the things that I talk about internally I, it's a drum that I can't absolutely keep banging internally is how the separation of content and, and context, is a completely artificial edifice. And uh, in a consumer's mind, those two things, that distinction is not the case. It's not there. they just, they just see advertising. Yeah. I'm, I'm making a very, very concerted effort, I think, spending a lot of time with people internally who are responsible for brand fundamentals or for the briefing process mm-hmm. or pre-production or creative development and making sure that they are exposed as much as possible. And there's a desire, there's a pull factor. They, they do yeah. want to know about this stuff. But I'm over-indexing on, the, on those yeah. guys because I, I think that's going to be one of the biggest things that's going to be the difference between winners and losers, I, I think, in this space. Because if you if you think about a lot of these new platforms that were – and they're not so new now anymore – many of them weren't designed from the ground up with advertising in mind yeah. and advertising – has become the, yeah, it's, it's it's um I wouldn't say it's an afterthought particularly, but it's the way that they realized that they could monetize yeah. the platforms. And so therefore they've had to re re reverse engineer advertising and its formats back into these contexts. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And one of the most powerful things that I think I've seen recently is, and I'm sure it crops up in many Facebook presentations and others, is this idea that every time there's a, There's a new technology or a new media platform or or pool of inventory that's available, that becomes almost available overnight. And it takes a little period of time for the people who are responsible for the the content that sits on those platforms. It takes a little, there's a lag factor, and they need to go through this process of replicating what happened before, which is why you end up with 30 second TV ads on on Facebook. Then they begin to understand how to optimize in the platform. But then, you know, it takes them a little bit of time to really begin to realize the full potential of those platforms. So I'm, yeah. I am spending a lot of time internally with those yeah. guys to make sure that happens as quickly as possible.
0: And that, that's where it's got to start, right? I mean, if we, if, if, we, if, we want, if we observe the global advertising industry, there is common understanding or acceptance that closer integration of that thinking is going to be better for everybody. Yeah. But it doesn't happen on its own because they've been siloed off through different business models and different lines of business and charging models, whatever. That, that They're their business structures. But removing the siloed thinking internally within marketing organizations so you don't have ad- advertising people and media people and breeding a new a new generation or encouraging a new generation that doesn't think in that kind of siloed way, that will then have a knock on effect right to the industry because those marketers will come through who force agencies, external partners, vendors, publishers to talk in a different way and not, yeah, absolutely. not, to, not to be siloed specialism. I think there's
1: a couple of things happening at the same time. I mean, the, the sense check that I always put in place is if I'm thinking about these long drawn out kind of briefing response evaluation cycles that, that we have, relatively speaking, and we're competing with a much smaller dynamic direct to consumer startup, you know, if it takes us four weeks to think about something and it's taken them four hours to think about it, decide on it and actually doing it, that's not a a competitively advantaged comparison, I don't think. So I keep going back to this idea of having large organizations with all these different people and handoffs and external partners, and then these small organizations who, because of their scarcity mindset, have to do it all themselves, but they end up with this amazing advantage of doing it faster, and there's greater agility and greater responsiveness. And so we're trying to build a lot of that uh, internally at P&G, and I'm I'm sure many other companies are doing it. And I think what happens is that if you bring some of that work in-house, as we and many others are are doing or thinking of doing, then not only do you move it from one part of the supply chain to another, you move it from outsource to insource, Mm. you minimize the handoff. So it starts to, by moving it from outsource to insource, you're in a de facto way beginning
0: to break down that silo because there's greater singularity of the people that are doing it. The in-housing mm-hmm. bit is, be, is some people in the industry have said, well, then, you, you know, you, you, you risk reducing the kind of quality of the thinking or the quality mm-hmm. of the output by kind of, because you just don't tap into all this best practice. But you do increase the perhaps speed to market. Yeah. And that's, that's the trade-off. And yeah. then you ha- you're, you faced as a market, I think, with a challenges. do I try to get my external partners who can give me quality? Can I, is it easier to get them to work faster or is it easier to take control? So we get speed and maybe forego some quality, but look oh, perhaps over the long term to yeah. you know, to, to improve yeah. that. I'm,
1: I can't remember who said this, some mathematician, I think, but I think he said no models are perfect, but some models are useful. Mm. And there are clearly trade-offs. So I, I don't think there's a binary right and wrong between bringing stuff in-house is better than delegating out to specialist external resources there's different choices that you can make at a different point in time and I think there is a broad acknowledgement that across the entire industry that maybe what we've done is that we've we've outsourced too much and there are certain disadvantages that have come along with that and maybe now is the right time and there are some very notable examples of this. I think Deutsche Telekom is a very good example of this where they are very intentionally, you know, spreading out the work on a, on a, on a continuum and then saying yeah. what kind of makes sense to put where. Yeah. And it may be that some of that work comes internally some of that work goes to one type of specialist and maybe some of that work goes to another type of specialist. Yeah. And I think in any and all of these cases you need to have a open and honest discussion about pros and cons. Because it's never gonna be it's never gonna be perfect. So one I think one of the things is, is just in terms of the area of creativity. That's a very, 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 you know, special and refined talent. And wherever that is, you need to go and find it. And when it happens, and you've seen it, I think, in, enough times, when it does actually happen, you realize how special that is. And I think you need to go and find it wherever
0: it is. Yeah. Okay, so last bit of this puzzle of being a media director is the change in the way that media is being bought. And it has implication. If we're saying, like, media, the media function, it should influence kind of further up in the, in the, in the chain, right, and start to influence the, con- the content a little bit more so we understand the context. Yeah. Media is going to be increasingly bought in Mm -hmm. a biddable auction based way, which we've talked a lot about on MediaStack, and you and I've talked about quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And for a large advertiser, that's an interesting challenge. You know, you've got big agencies doing big negotiation with big Mm -hmm. publishers and big TV networks. It's all about big and big. And if you're very big, you can buy things cheaper mm-hmm. than other people. And that's been very good for growing these giant CPG businesses, giant motor businesses. Anyone with yeah. a giant budget yeah. Can, yeah. can get competitive advantage from their scale. But when more media is bought at an auction, mm-hmm. how does that impact a business that's relied on its muscle – so we're, How do you find competitive advantage? Yes. When...
1: So we're, we're keenly aware of that. The first thing to, to do is, is, A, have the self-awareness that that is happening mm. and not to continually cling on to the competitive advantage that you've had and try and squeeze as much as you possibly can out of that exclusively. Mm. I mean, clearly continue to do that. Mm. But don't forget that scale can express itself in different ways. And one of the things that large companies like P&G are slowly beginning to realize is that simply by manufacturing and supplying and selling products to billions of people around the world, that's another expression of scale that can result in data that's collected in an entirely appropriate way that then can begin to feed back into your model that that starts to recreate that competitive advantage. And I think that's one of the things that we're finding and some other big advertisers are finding is that the scale part of your competitive advantage doesn't necessarily just disappear. Mm. It just kind of reappears in a slightly different form. And I think that you need to be sufficiently aware of the dynamics of the marketplaces that you're operating in to realize that so that you can begin to shift from leveraging or scale in one particular way to leveraging it in in another
0: you've been in Cincinnati I've been in Cincinnati
1: I've been in Cincinnati for a couple of days and I I think I'm just about on U.S. time now
0: good okay so it's probably what is it it's like maybe it's dinner time in Geneva we'll go and grab some dinner yeah Jerry thank you so much no problem it was my pleasure who would you like to meet on future episodes please let us know at mediasnackpodcast.com where you will also find previous guests, including leading media executives from companies like P&G, L'Oreal, Mars, and many more, plus some of the industry's most provocative thought leaders, people like Professor Mark Ritson and Gary Vaynerchuk. You can subscribe to get new episodes each week, and if you liked this episode and you think somebody else would, then please do share it. Thank you so much for listening.